morning, everybody. So we're going to be in uh, Jeremiah 18 and Jeremiah 19 today. And uh, if you want to go ahead and put a little uh, slip of paper in Romans chapter 9, there's a chance we may land over there briefly. Uh, by way of overview, uh, your Bible may be like mine does and labels uh, chapter 18, the potter and the clay. Uh, you know, we heard the, the hymn many years, you know, I am the potter, uh, or you are the potter, I am the clay from, uh, was that Have Thine Own Way? Is that, uh, is that where that's from? And um, so we're going to talk about, um, in chapter 18, uh, kind of an object lesson where uh, Jeremiah observes uh, a pot being made. And then in chapter 19, um, God tells him to go buy a pot. And uh, we're going to kind of contrast these two chapters a little bit. They complement each other. They contrast a little bit. Um, but uh, that's, that's kind of our, our scope of uh, work today. Uh, so we start off with um, some, uh, some prose, kind of a, a description of what happened. And then there's some poetry in there. And if you, again, if, I don't know if your Bible's like mine, but uh, the, the paragraph formatting is a little bit different to kind of help you decide uh, which is which. Uh, so we'll start in chapter 18, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. So picture... Um, uh, picture the, uh, the, the potter there uh, seated in front of a, a spinning wheel and the, the configuration would have, um, like the Hebrew there, uh, says uh, he was, uh, when, where my translation said he was working at his wheel, the Hebrew basically says sitting between two stones. And the configuration of the wheel back then would have been um, uh, a wheel at the bottom by the potter's feet, um, probably a big, little bigger and a little bit thicker, and then a shaft that rose vertically connected to another uh, platform, uh, probably made of wood, and uh, the potter would, would kick the wheel with his foot, which would spin things around. And if, um, if you go on YouTube, you can see these in action. Um, uh, there are people who build their own. Uh, I watched a YouTube of a guy who with just a, what's called a, a, I think they call it a kick wheel, um, cranked out 159 pots about this big in one hour. It's about every 24 seconds, he cranked out another pot. It was pretty amazing. Um, they condense it, you don't have to watch it for the whole hour. <laughs> um, but, uh, but that technology is still happening to, all, all, the, all the way to, to, to now. And um, that's, in your mind's eye, as you think about uh, where it says he was working at his wheel, he was sitting between two stones, and very descriptive there. And so Jeremiah is, is given this little, uh, this little snapshot. God takes him down there and says, you know, I want you to see what's happening here. And it says that in verse 4, the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it. Some translations might say reshaped it uh, into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. And that last phrase, as it seemed good to the potter to do, is going to introduce one of the main themes that goes 
through uh, these two chapters, and that has to do with the providence of God, or you might say the sovereignty of God, which isn't exactly the same thing, but is related. Um, the, the lump of clay is subject to the desires of the potter. That's the concept here. Verse 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me, right? Remember, God said, go down there, and that's where I'm going to uh, let you hear my words, as it says. Uh, So while he was there, verse 5, Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so you are in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do it, Now therefore say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return every one from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. Throughout Jeremiah, we've been hearing in various ways, God, through Jeremiah, telling the people, Change, 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 change. Um, go back to what I had originally told you. So when we see these two um, hypotheticals that that the Lord mentions, um, if there's a kingdom that I intend to pluck down and destroy, and and uh, it says if they turn from its evil, then I'm going to relent from the disaster I had planned in store. Or the second one, if there's a nation that I've decided to to bless in essence. And then if they go against uh, and don't listen to my voice and do evil, then I'm going to change my mind about them too. And of course, it's the second scenario uh, that applies to uh, Judah and uh, the southern uh, territory there. Um, in other words, don't think that I'm not going to deal with you. You would have thought that this would have been very obvious to them because the northern ten tribes, it had already happened to, right? They had had their set of prophets. They had had their opportunity to turn away, and they didn't do it. And they saw the Assyrians come down and swoop them up. How arrogant must it have been to think, oh, yeah, but that's not going to happen to us because we have Jerusalem and we have the temple. So we're good. We don't have to do anything. We don't have to change anything. You know, very, very blinded to think that something bad wasn't going to happen. Now, this might be as good a time to end as any. You know, very often um, those of us of a, a certain age uh, might have said, you know, the way things are today in America um, didn't used to be this way, right? And so, how many people maybe would want to go back 50 years um, thinking that things might be better, right? I came across a sermon on Jeremiah from um, Pastor Ray Stedman. Uh, 
we've quoted him before. He was uh, Chuck Swindoll's pastor back in the day. And he says, in our own day, as you know, America is a nation which is rapidly forgetting God. And so, in our own time, we too are watching the phenomenon of a nation which has forgotten God being turned into hell with corruption spreading in the land, the moral fiber of our people losing its consistency, the government increasingly unable to govern properly, the institutions of American life being shaken by frequent panics and torn with dissension, all this exactly in line with the prediction of the scriptures. How does that sound like a headline from today? 50 years ago that was written. 48, technically. 1974. If he thought it was bad then, <laughs> he might think it was worse. I don't know. Maybe not. Um, it just shows how things have either changed or not changed, uh, depending on depending on how you go. Verse 12. But they say, so now we hear in this one sentence of verse 12 that I'm going to read, we hear the response of the people. Right? So Jeremiah has delivered this message, and now we hear their response. But they say, that is in vain. We will follow our own plans, and will everyone act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart? The response was, no, I think we'll just keep doing what we're doing. Verse 13, in kind of poetry form, now this is God's response to that rejection. Therefore, thus says the Lord, ask among the nations, who's heard the like of this? We kind of use phrasing like that sometimes. I've never heard the like of that. Well, this is God saying, who has, who has heard of a nation that was blessed like you have been blessed, who has been protected like you've been protected, who has been, you know, energized for, you know, driving out all the, you know, the evil peoples and blessed in every way. Who's heard the like of you turning your back on that? Who's heard this? The virgin Israel has done a very horrible thing. Verse 14, does the snow of Lebanon leave the crags of Syrian? Do the mountains waters run dry, the cold flowing streams? But my people have forgotten me. They make offerings to false gods. They've made them stumble in their ways, in the ancient roads, and to walk into side roads, not the highway, making their land a horror, a thing to be hissed at forever. Everyone who passes by it is horrified and shakes his head. Like the east wind, I will scatter them before the enemy. And just a, a devastating comment, I will show them my back, not my face, in the day of their calamity. I'm literally turning my back on you. That's chilling. Now it gets personal. Jeremiah's human. He says, then they said, come let us make plots against Jeremiah for the law shall not perish from the priest nor the counsel from the wise nor the word from the prophet. Let us strike him with the tongue. Let us not pay attention to any of his words. So the populace in essence is saying, you know, we've got other priests. We've got other prophets. We've got other counselors and wise men. We would rather listen to them. We don't want to listen to Jeremiah. And in this last section, Jeremiah says, Hear me, O Lord. Um, 
you know, bring badness upon them. You can read it in the interest of time. I'll skip it. But basically it says, you know, hurt them, God, because I don't like what they're doing to me. That's the paraphrase. Verse 19. I'm sorry, chapter 19. Thus says the Lord. This is to Jeremiah. Go, buy a potter's earthenware flask, take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests, and go out into the valley of the son of Hinnom at the entry of the potsherd gate, and proclaim there the words that I tell you. So, in the first little vignette, uh, Jeremiah was told to go down to the potter's uh, house and, and was to observe what was happening, and then he would hear from the Lord. In this case, he's told to go to the potters to buy an earthenware flask, and this time to take some people with him, to take the elders and some of the elders of the priests. Uh, so in this case, he wants an audience because what you're going to see is that this is going to be like a little road trip. They're going to travel. First stop is at the potter's um, place, and they're going to buy something, a flask, and the uh, apparently there's Hebrew that suggests that this is a more of a uh, probably one of the fancier wares that the pot, potter would have maybe something uh, kind of long and fluted and, and something that would be designed to hold um, you know more than just you know a, a tub of grain or something like that um, something a little fancier uh, go buy a potter's earthenware flask take these people with you and it says go out into the valley of the son of Hinnom at the entry of the potsherd gate. So picture the city, and you can, you can look this up online and see what it looks like now. And I was trying to get some sense of the scale of how big this valley was. And as you look across it, um, you can kind of see the other side of the valley, uh, not too far away. I'm picturing maybe one or 200 yards wide and maybe two or 300 yards Long. So picture, if you've ever been in the nosebleed sections of a big stadium, right? If you've been to the original Death Valley, which it pains me to say, at Clemson. Or if you've been to um, the better Death Valley at LSU. Um, or if you've been to, <laughs> um, if you've been to uh, williams Bryce, You know, if you've been to Panther State. If you've been to a big stadium where you can look down and then look across and up. Maybe just expand that a little bit and then put a couple of them together. And so everybody can kind of see what's going on. All right, so in this valley, a lot had been happening. So this was a kind of a multi-purpose facilities, you might say. First of all, it was a city dump. So everybody was bringing their stuff and this was this was the dump. Now, before there was curbside pickup, if you have that in the city, or a service that you subscribe to, um, or now they're called convenience centers, right, where you can, in the county, you can take your trash. Um, do you guys ever remember a, when there was just a dump, just a place where you just literally dumped your stuff? Um, growing up, on the, the way into town, we would pass by it back and forth our house all the time, this dump. 
it was probably at least as big as all of Covenant's property. Is that fair? And there were just smoldering piles of stuff. Um, it's horrible. It was only like maybe a mile from the main river that went through. It's, it's horrible. Um, but it was a dump. And, you know, if, if you had something big to cart off, you know, you would load it up in your pickup truck, back up to some place that seemed reasonable, and just shove it all out. And that was considered the thing to do. It sounds bad. But that what, that's what was happening in this Valley of Hinnom. So that's number one, it was a dump. Number two, it says, um, further down, you'll see the, the term topheth. Uh, we're going to read in a moment. Topheth was something you might say, kind of like maybe an altar area. This was where they would come and sacrifice their children to Molech. We're going to read about the blood of innocence. That's where this happened. In the middle of this valley, child sacrifice. And then there were also, because of this, there were urns scattered about with the bones of these children. So in essence, it was also a cemetery. So just picture that. Now, I ask how many people have been to a dump it's probably not a great leap to say how many people have smelled the dump. Right? So now, now you've got it really because it was full of death and it smelled like death. So that's where Jeremiah is taking the elders and the elders of the priests. Verse 3. You shall say, Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such disaster upon this place that the ears of everyone who hear of it will tingle. Because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods, they have filled this place with the blood of innocence and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place shall be no more called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. And in this place I will make void the plans of Judah and Jerusalem, and I will cause their people to fall by the sword before their enemies, and by the hand of those who seek their life. I will give their dead bodies for food to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the earth, and I will make this city a horror, a thing to be hissed at. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss at all of its wounds, and I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and their daughters, and they everyone shall eat the flesh of his neighbor in the siege and in the distress with which their enemies and those who seek their life afflict them. Things are going to be so bad that you're going to go down, you're going to find those children that you've sacrificed, and you're going to be so hungry you're going to eat them, and you're going to eat the children of your neighbors. And everyone is going to see you do it and mock you at how depraved 
and how desperate you've become. Verse 10. Then you shall break the flask in the sight of the men who go with you and shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, So will I break this people and this city as one breaks a potter's vessel so that it can never be mended. Men shall bury in Topheth because there will be no place else to bury. Thus will I do to this place, declares the Lord, and to its inhabitants, making this city like Topheth. The houses of Jerusalem and the houses of the kings of Judah, all the houses on whose roof, roofs offerings have been offered to all the hosts of heaven and drink offerings have been poured out to other gods, shall be defiled like the place of Topheth. So, he takes this flask and he throws it down and breaks it among the other pottery and stones scattered about and it totally shatters. In the first vignette, we have a lump of clay that is still moldable by the potter. It's able to be shaped. And even if it's not exactly right, the potter can deal with that, can reshape it, can remold it as he sees fit. Now we have a flask fully hardened in the kiln, unchangeable, easily broken, easily shattered, irreparable. Apparently, it was kind of a tradition before a commander went into battle that he would take some sort of a vessel, perhaps similar to this, and dash it in front of his troops saying, this is what we're going to do to our enemies, and basically this is our guarantee of success, this is how bad it's going to be for them, and then they would march off into battle in anticipation of that type of permanent guaranteed victory. And that's some of the other kind of uh, scenery behind this, this little object lesson. Then look what happens, verse 14. Then Jeremiah came from Topheth, where the Lord had sent him to prophesy, and he stood in the court of the Lord's house and said to all the people, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon the city and upon all its towns all the disaster that I have pronounced against it, because they have stiffened their neck, refusing to hear my words. When you went into the temple court, before you could get very far, you had to wash up. There were basins set aside for, for cleansing physically. But if you had been in contact with a dead person, it was going to be some time before you could get purified enough where you could join in worship. There were three big things that defiled Jeremiah. He was in a cemetery. He was in contact with the dead. He was in a dump, contact with refuse, literally unclean. He was at a site of pagan worship, also 
anathema, unclean. Any one of those would have made him totally prohibited from going into the temple court. But what did he do? He marched them all right up to the temple court. So they must have been somewhat aghast that he would be willing to do this, but in a way this was kind of bringing home to them because they probably were still worshiping God, you know, uh, at least superficially. They were going through the motions, right? But now Jeremiah is right in the middle of that, totally defiled, still smelling like death probably. And right here is where he's going to give the rest of the proclamation. It says, thus says the Lord, this is what's going to happen to you. So, two very um, illustrative lessons here about what was happening with these people. If you read through them, it does, you know, it, it fits in keeping with everything we've heard, right? Um, bad days are coming, God's going to punish you, you've got to repent, and so forth. We don't know what period of time happened between chapter 18 and chapter 19, probably some period of time. But you can see that there's a change from the moldable clay where there's perhaps an option to repent versus the second picture where it's over. It's late in the game. It's simply not going to happen. And now it's, he's just predicting exactly what's going to happen. Paul refers to this section in Romans chapter 9. We're going to get a little preview of this. All I have to do is preview it, raise the appropriate questions, and in God's providence, Pastor Bobby can clean things up in a few weeks when he hits Romans chapter 9. That's awesome. We know throughout Romans, Paul has been making a case um, for a lot of things, um, not the least of which has to do with the standing of um, the, uh, the nation of Israel uh, versus the true Israel, um, that is those uh, who are part of Christ, not Adam, or more specifically of Christ, not Abraham. Um, And he gets into this thing. We'll start in verse 12, I guess, or 13, uh, where he's, he's talking about some actions that God has taken in the past. Verse 13 says, this is Romans 9, As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Right there, that we, have a, we, we choke on that a little bit right out the gate, right? It just doesn't sound very godly for him to just, Paul, just to say, uh, God says, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. And he goes on as he's working through the logic of this. Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there an injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. 
For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to the men, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? In other words, if you're resisting God, how is that even your fault if it's God that's doing everything? Verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder? In other words, what will the pot say to the potter? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he is he called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. This is a tough, tough passage. It talks about the sovereignty of God, the providence of God. Um, I learned a new term reviewing this, which is not the first time I've tried to sort this out, but I learned a new term called concurrence. Have you guys heard the word concurrence in connection with these topics? It was new to me, and so many people talked about it. I don't know how I've not come across it in the past, but concurrence has to do with that there are human actions that are happening, and there are divine actions that are happening. Each party the human and God both have full agency in the things that they are doing but they interact in a way so that the human is fully in control of his own actions but yet God is fully control of everything as well it's interesting I read quite a few pages on it and I still don't have it totally figured out but the bottom line is that scripture teaches that we worship and serve a God who created us and didn't just step back and let things go but is continually and intimately involved in how things continue to go this is basically what providence is a few hundred years ago this would not have been a strange topic. It was the expectation that God was aware of what was going on and was involved in the outcome of things, right? That was, in essence, assumed. Um, that's not assumed anymore. Um, chance is basically considered to be the ultimate cause behind all things in our kind of postmodern, post-Christian world. Um, so scripture teaches that kind of a God. Scripture also teaches that men and women are able to choose things, right or wrong, and the decisions that we make have eternal consequences. We are responsible for the things that happen pulling those two things together that we are 
fully responsible for the things that we do and that the calamity and the sin and the punishment that we all ultimately deserve is truly our fault but running that parallel with God who is coordinating all of this and responsible for everything um, and is truly the ultimate cause behind everything putting those two things together in a way that seems fully compatible just that's the part where we all fail but we have to realize that scripture teaches both things um, and there's you know a lot of people have have done pretty good job of it um, and I can give you references if you want to dig into this uh, some more but um, but it is tricky it is tricky and and there are there are times when you just have to hold both things in your hand and realize that they're both true um, there's uh, several times Pastor Bobby has talked about the Westminster Confession the third item we've talked about the first one you know the chief end of man and we've talked about that third one has to do with God's eternal decree it says God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass that's not all of it though yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away but rather established in other words these secondary causes those are the ones that we are responsible for it says God is not the author of sin nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures that's us in other words God's will doesn't do violence doesn't change the will of the creatures nor is the liberty or contingency of the second causes taken away in other words it's so crazy and so mysterious that even though God it says freely and unchangeably ordained whatsoever comes to fa pass he has done that in a way that doesn't change our agency crazy mysterious but that's what the Bible teaches if you try to throw things in a system uh, that's where it gets hard right if you go hardline free will Arminianism there's problems with that if you go hardline what would typically be called Calvinism or hardline reform there's some problems with that um, it seems best to me to kind of just have kind of a foot in both camps and just to go with it um, so uh, to the third point of the Westminster Confession all right, so don't, I don't, we'll have to find out when chapter 9 is going to be covered by Pastor Bobby, but don't miss that one. Pat? You started off the lesson saying God was trying to get his people to change. Yes. And I know that Jeremiah is a message to the nation. Right.
Yeah, um, I totally agree with that. In fact, several of the commentators actually said the same thing. Actually, I'm not sure they said it as well, to be honest. But they said that uh, as they tried to break it down, that the clay was the person and that the wheel that was spinning, they said, was the circumstances of life that were being used in that process of shaping the person um, and that God was using those things. So that makes total sense to me. Right. And of course, um, you know, for, for Christians, you know, this ongoing process, we call that what? Sanctification, right? Because uh, even though God sees us as righteous, um, we're, we haven't fully realized that on a personal level yet. And uh, so there's still work to do. So, yeah. Hard to resist the potter. All right. That's all I got. Father, we thank you that uh, you are a potter that we can trust and that when things don't make sense, we can still trust and that when we resist, um, we can still trust. And we uh, thank you for Jesus in whom we trust uh, to be part of your family. In his name I pray, amen. Thanks, everybody.